Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what is going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, Keith is diving into an interesting issue and one many of us have pondered of late amid the war in Ukraine, the threat of nuclear war and a pandemic. What would it take for society to completely collapse? The question's been explored in a recent article by Adam Van Buskirk in Palladium magazine. Now, you've certainly picked a grim topic, maybe (laughs) is the right word for this week's episode, Keith, but reading through Van Buskirk's analysis, it might take more than we think for total societal collapse. Would you agree? Absolutely. So in a macabre way, this is rather an optimistic (laughs) point of view because the bottom line, as he says, is that, look, if you look back through history, we've had all sorts of problems in the past and we have managed to survive. Now, of course, the exception that all of us have to keep making is the risk of nuclear war, which could certainly wipe out a lot of people. Putting nuclear weapons to one side, what he is saying is that we've had all sorts of problems in the past and society somehow has managed to recover. He's, got, he's very good on the Black Death. So this is between 1348 and 1349. About a third of the European population uh, was wiped out just like the Wuhan virus, this is a, a problem we think arose in Asia, was carried by rats on board ships trading with China and Europe, and somehow the plague just spread across Europe, uh, all the way from Turkey, all the way across to Britain and Ireland. And a third of the population got wiped out. But he says even with this Black Death, the Great Plague, nonetheless life managed to continue in Great Britain. And one of the ways in which you can find out what was going on in Britain was to look through the court records. So you could see what the cases were being brought by whom, etc. And he said the legal system was able to continue to operate despite the illness, except for two months, which was May and June of 1349. Otherwise, with the plague underway, these people... The courts, the lawyers survived, right? Of course, the sharks. (laughs) The lawyers survived, the judges (laughs) survived. And, of course, there was a lot of work for the legal system because suddenly so many people were dying. There were disputes over wills and who should inherit property, etc. And so the courts were certainly kept busy. And except for those two months in the year 1349, the courts remained open and handling all this litigation. So in a macabre way... The article is uh, reassuring that somehow, even with this current virus that we've got, that somehow life will continue to go on. Now, of course, we've been blessed in a way that those poor people with the Black Death were not able to be blessed, which was, of course, through vaccinations. And so providing people are fully vaccinated, they probably won't be going into hospital. They may still get the illness, but they're not going to end up in intensive care units. So we're perhaps a little better off than the people uh, during that Black Death era. But the, the warning that he's just giving is, look, okay, you've got all these people talking about the end of the world. He has a lovely uh, expression here. 
collapse enthusiasts. Yes, yeah. doomsayers. <laughs> doomsayers, exactly. Preppers, um, I think, as well, people who prepare for the end of the world. Well, that's right, the yeah. preppers, yeah. So he's um, he's saying, well, even if we are going to have a, a massive collapse of society, we know from what happened between 1348 and 1349 that, in fact, life continued. And, of course, after the Black Death, there was a shortage of labour. So people who were surviving got pay rises. Mm. <laughs> well, people here in Australia might be hoping for something <laughs> similar, maybe. Um, also, he talks about World War II and kind of um, particularly in Berlin yeah. and what was happening there. Can you talk us through some of the points he made about the similarities? Yeah, this I, I found this fascinating. So he says that at the close of the Second World War, Berlin was in ruins. Its residents underwent food rationing and the complete loss of luxuries like coffee and chocolate. Apart from a period lasting for a few months, many essential employees and low-level bureaucrats continued to wake up, clock in, work, go home, and do it all again the next day. And then by 1946, so the year after the war, Reconstruction had put many of Berlin's essential workers back to work because they had to start clearing the streets and doing the rebuilding, etc. And he has a, an example here that a, a bus conductor uh, who started his job in 1935 would likely have operated the streetcar, received a paid check, and paid rent normally up to about April of 1945, which is the end of the war, despite the bombing of Berlin and intermittent uh, destruction of the tracks on which his vehicle would travel. If he survived and emerged from the rubble, he was almost certainly back at work by 1946, the next year. Back to work. Transporting workers for the reconstruction efforts. People had to be moved around. He would deposit his paycheck into his account at the same bank and likely um, kept paying rent to the same landlord. It is likely that our conductor never missed more than one filing at most for any tax year. So the tax men also survive. <laughs> Lawyers and tax officials, always, they always, always. survive. <laughs> By the 1946 tax year, revenues were stable enough that the occupation forces, so that's Britain, America and France, could run balanced budgets for the domestic cost. It's, it's quite amazing. And reading this jog my memory about um, Edwin Blatt's book on the role of IBM and the Holocaust. When you go into the Holocaust Museum, in Washington, D.C., on the left-hand side, you see an IBM calculating machine, although it's got the German subsidiary, the Hollerith company, uh, on the, the actual label. Because it, it, that helps us to solve the mystery of how the Germans were able to track down six million Jews in order to exterminate them. That The IBM had invented a particular type of pen, punch card. Now, you're a youngster, so you probably don't remember punch mm -hmm. cards. I've... I've I used them when I started work that many, many decades ago. <laughs> um, and IBM had the global patent on a particular type of card, which you would use for punch card purposes. These machines through the German subsidiary were, were sold to the Nazi regime. And one of the purposes of the punch cards was to keep track of all the Jews in the occupied territories and in Germany. And throughout all of the late 1930s and then throughout World War II, Hitler continued to pay royalties to IBM. He was a good customer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted well, the contract. You know. You know, and um, and then after the war, IBM sent in teams to make sure that they got all the machines back, and they also um, 
checked on all the invoicing, make sure they got all the money out of the Germans. So really quite amazing, the German mentality, even though Germany was now at war with the United States, Germany nonetheless continued to pay the royalties to IBM. It's really a bit like what we're at the moment with Ukraine yes. and Russia. Yes, that's right. That's what I wanted to ask you about because, you know, this the whole collapse of society, we think, you know, a war breaks out and that's the end. But there's actually more trade going on than ever before, isn't there, in some parts of Europe yes. amid the war in Ukraine? Absolutely. And of course, um, the Germans are heavily reliant. We're back to the Germans. The Germans are heavily reliant upon that Russian energy. And um, we're not sure if the Russians are going to renew their uh, use of um, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, the major pipeline running under the Baltic from Russia into Germany. And um, and getting back to this article, another one that's, uh, that really intrigued me is despite the military defeat and a change in regime, a number of bureaucratic bodies and obligations continued functioning after the war. So p- pension schemes in particular have shown um, a unique persistence. In 2019, the German government was still paying Third Reich-era German state pensions to foreign citizens in a number of different nations. So before 1945, the, the Nazi regime had recruited foreign workers and guaranteed them pensions. And here we are, well over 60 years after the end of the war, the Germans are still honouring that commitment to Isn't pay pensions insane? to people wow. who uh, went to... Um, Fight. A a decree signed by Hitler in 1941 had established payments for foreign volunteers in the SS, and the post-war German government went on to pay them for decades. There you go. (laughs) You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. This week's topic is the end of the world and whether it's something that could actually ever happen, as explored in a recent article by Adam Van Buskirk. Keith, you touched on it a little earlier, uh, nuclear war. We've been living with the threat of it for a long time and most people would think it'd destroy us. But as Van Buskirk explores in this article, that might not be the case. Yeah, so we may still have some survivors. I made a name for myself in the 1980s giving talks on the problem with so-called limited nuclear war. The, The Americans had developed a new type of nuclear missile, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Missile, which could travel across Europe in about seven minutes and uh, would destroy, in a surprise attack, the Soviet land-based missile systems. And so the assumption that was made in the mid-1980s is that most of Europe would be destroyed, all of the Soviet Union would be destroyed, and perhaps 10 20% of Americans would be destroyed. And so American government departments were asked to devise plans for how they would cope with a limited nuclear war. And the US Postal Service said, we can still guarantee the mail will get through. (laughs) Well, that's what you need, I guess, (laughs) your mail going out in nuclear fallout. And um, and of course, the, the development of these nuclear missiles just so terrified the general population that Reagan and Gorbachev, Uh, ended up with an agreement to ban that type of nuclear weapon. And the slogan from Reagan was that a nuclear war uh, should never be fought and could never be won. And so that sort of helped us in this campaign to get rid of some of the nuclear weapons. And we 
if you want some good news, you don't get much from me. But if, <laughs> Please give us some. <laughs> <laughs> we have far fewer nuclear weapons in the world now than we would have had back in the 80s and 90s. So the US and the Soviet Union, which between them um, have um, 80 to 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, have themselves been reducing their stockpiles. Now, they're supposed to get them down to zero, and they haven't done that, but they certainly have reduced the, the number of, of nuclear weapons. So it is possible that uh, we could have a nuclear war, and, of course, this is what the speculation is at the moment between Russia and the United States over Ukraine, but that there will be parts of the world that would survive. Yeah, and that's something Van Buskirk talks about in the article, which I found quite fascinating, was his predictions about what would happen if nuclear war were to break out. Say, you know, 20, 30 million deaths and us sitting here now probably go, well, that's a huge number of people. But he actually predicts that life would continue in some form. Absolutely. And so he's, um, it's very interesting. He's very stoical about this. He was sort of saying, look, don't get too worried about all these predictions about everybody being wiped out because that that may not happen and that even some forms of electronic equipment may still be able to operate in the event of a a nuclear war. And given the enduring nature of tax and financial authorities, Americans will still be filling in their tax returns a year or two after a limited nuclear war. It's crazy to think about. It, it, It is crazy. And of course, what he also points out, which goes back to the power of economics, is that Trade never ends. So in the article, you know, he, he, he looks about the, the permanent nature of bureaucracies, particularly lawyers and the tax department, but then he also looks at the trade is eternal and that in the third millennium BC, so we're talking about 5,000 years ago, tin flowed from modern-day Cornwall, which is the western side of England, through Central Europe and the Mediterranean. So 5,000 years ago, the tin miners in Cornwall, Western England, uh, were busy. Um, the Arabian Gulf connected the Mesopotamian societies with the Indus. So Mesopotamia would be today's Iraq with the civilizations in India. So we see, he says here, in the long run, there is no disaster in human history that has permanently ended trade between regions and continents. So that's, I guess, again, a reassurance for us going, well, People just, we need those things. It continues, you know. So what makes our society unique isn't global trade per se, but the level to which the average person is tied into a highly complex market system spanning the entire world. And the collapse scenarios for this system range from supply chain meltdown to the end of cheap energy. But somehow things will still continue to flow, that that people need to have trade, they need the supply of goods and services, and so somehow or other we will find a way of continuing it. One of my favourite examples is the beginning of the weird world, which is my favourite expression. So the Western educated, industrialised, rich, democratic world uh, begins in 1492. So that was the year in which Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And what was he doing? He was heading out uh, west to reach China. Islam had severed the Silk Road, making it difficult for goods to travel between, say, Lisbon and Beijing. So he needed a way into China. And so he nonetheless expected to um, encounter 
on his trip to China, uh, Muslims. So he took with him an Arabic-speaking Spanish Jew. (laughs) And when he reached the Americas, in our language, when he reached the Americas, Mm -hmm. he put the Jew ashore to speak to the locals, thinking he's reached an Islamic society. But it meant that that Arabic was the first language spoken in the Americas from outside of the indigenous languages there. But you go back to 1492, this is because the Europeans still wanted to trade with China, Mm. so we had to find a new way because the Muslims were now blocking that path, making it more difficult for goods to travel unmolested from one side of the world to the other. And so... Columbus set out to sail the world in the interests of expanding global trade. There you go. Um, Keith, speaking of, you know, the trade and how it's resilient, um, we saw at the start of the COVID pandemic and still continuing now, trade windows between nations, between continents, severely impacted. Do you think we've seen the risk of what could happen if something bigger than COVID were to happen? I think we've certainly seen some risks, and I think that probably we've gone too far with our just-in-time thinking. I think I've raised this in the past, that because we've had good supply chains, then the bean counters have moved in on us, and they are are sort of talking about just-in-time. So in other words, instead of ordering quite a, a few goods to keep on your shelves, instead of doing that, you have just in time supply chains. I think that that was unwise. I think we've gone too far in that direction and we need to build more fat, more surplus into the system. So my preference is just in case rather than just in time. So build up a little bit of fat in the system so you're not so reliant upon uh, supply chains because they can be disrupted. As you've said, you know, with COVID, we've seen this disruption as we talk here. Um, a third of a billion people, 300 million people, are in lockdown in China at the moment, including the major city, Shanghai, which is the centre of business activities. So it means that supply chains are being disrupted. So I think that we've got to find ways of developing resilient supply chains and perhaps bring more manufacturing onshore for us. We need to learn from this COVID crisis. Mm. And Keith, to wrap us up back to the collapse of society, do you think our society is a lot more resilient than what doomsayers would believe? Oh, I think so. And I think this article brings that out very well indeed. That's why I say in a macabre way, it's quite an optimistic article because as he's saying, look at your own history, the Black Death, even World War II, life somehow has to continue. And so whatever disaster may befall us, somehow some people will still manage to survive. It will not be the same sort of world but their life will somehow find a way of carrying on. And I might just say that in 1982, which is the height of the concern about World War III, we found our replacements on the deep ocean floor. These are six-foot-long giant worms. So if we do wipe out every human being on Earth, wait long enough, and these giant worms with no eyes, no sense of of smell, because you're down there living off the toxic waste coming out of the Earth, but they're an incredibly resilient form of life, six-foot-long giant worms, um, and they, in the fullness of time, will probably evolve and become a new life form on this earth if you wait long enough. 
<laughs> so don't worry, there will always be life of some sort on this planet. Oh, we'll always continue on. Fascinating to talk about, Keith. Thank you so much. And like you said, maybe a little reassurance for people a bit worried about the fate of the world. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Listener.